This morning I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew's Gospel and chapter number five, chapter number nine, Matthew's Gospel chapter nine, and today we're thinking about praying that everyone could hear the gospel, praying for those who are lost, and I want us to think about today whether indeed it is right for us to pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How many of y'all believe that it is right for us to pray for people who don't know Christ as Savior? Amen. And is it our habit to do so? Are we engaged in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, praying fervently for those who don't know Christ, joining our Savior in the work that he's called us to? So often we talk about, we talk about evangelism, And we talk about prayer more than we actually do it. And if you were to evaluate your own prayer life, where would you evaluate it? And what percentage of your prayer life is praying for people who don't know Christ to turn from sin and trust in him? And today's message is really quite about that. And so I want us to look to the ninth chapter of Matthew. And look at how Jesus lived his life, his activity, but then also what he, you see his heart, and uh, you see the condition of people, and then you see the call for us to pray. And so look at this passage with me in chapter 9, verse 35. And uh, it says, Jesus went through all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father in heaven, I pray that today, today, we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, convict us, help us to see the world as you see the world, to see men and women and boys and girls like you see them. Father, I pray that you would move our hearts closer to yours and the God that you would move us to be workers in your harvest. Father, I pray that today that we would set aside the things that might distract us, things that would sidetrack us, And Father, may we pursue the things that are most important in our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I can't tell you how excited I am that we're engaged in praying for our city. And I know many of you that are in this room have signed up and agreed to pray for our city over the the course of the next several months. 
and uh, you've agreed to take a list of names, and you've begun praying for those names. I've already received reports back from people that said, I received a note in the mail from folks who are praying for me and for my family. Isn't that great? I'm so excited. I want to say, that's our church. And so uh, we're, we're praying for people that don't know Christ and praying for people in their hurting and their brokenness. And so I am just so grateful and I encourage you, don't get distracted. Don't lose your discipline. If you fall behind, catch up and pray over those names and pray for God to move. I look forward to what's going to happen in the coming months for eternity because God's people are moved in praying and claiming this city for, for, the, the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Praying that Satan would be bound. Praying that scales would fall off people's eyes. Praying that the glory of Jesus Christ would be revealed to them. Praying that God the Father would draw them by his spirit to himself. Praying that they would be born again for the glory of God. That's what I'm praying that God would do in our church, but in our community and in our world. Not that Bethel would be a bigger church, but the glory of God would be made known in our world for his glory and his honor. Amen? Is it right to pray for lost people? Manly Beasley said, praying for the law, in a little article called Praying for the Lost, he said, praying for the lost is an area about which much is said, but little is known or understood. Jesus prayed for the lost, didn't he? Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 23, we see our Savior hanging on a cross. They have beaten him, scourged him, jeered, mocked, made fun of him. They pronounced judgment on him and took him outside of the city and there to a place called Golgotha, a place called the Skull. In, Cal in Latin, it's called Calvary. They hung him on a Roman cross, taking nails and driving them into his hands and feet. And between two criminals, he's hanging on a cross. The criminals on either side making fun of him and jeering at him and mocking him. One comes to his senses. And repents of sin. But as Jesus is on the cross, he looks down, thieves on either side, accusers below him, betrayers, deniers, haters, Romans and Greeks and Jews, rich and poor, men and women, hurling insults at him, some grieving from a distance. And Jesus says, Father, Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. In Isaiah chapter number 53, we have there the great suffering servant. And it says concerning Isaiah, a prophecy of Christ, that he intercedes for transgressors. That he intercedes for transgressors. Paul prayed for those who were lost. He said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his own people, is for their salvation, that they would be saved. 
Stephen was being stoned to death for the gospel. They took him outside of the city. They took him uh, and they cast him down and picked up stones and began to pelt him, to kill him, to silence him. And as the stones were pelting his body, breaking bones and limbs and before he went unconscious, Lord, he said, do not hold this sin against them. Praying for lost people. Praying for hateful people. Praying for people that were hurting them. John Knox prayed. He said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. What kind of praying do we have? Or George Whitfield, who said, give me souls, Father, or take my soul. A brokenness for lostness. Richard Baxter, an English Puritan, said, Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or men in you, let them yearn towards your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize them. And if they die unregenerate, they're lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to helping others? Wow. God has called us to be involved in this harvest. It is right to pray for the lost. First of all, n number one, because of who God is. God is love. Amen? <clears throat> Tell your neighbor, God is is love. He loves you. God has demonstrated his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? God loves you. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 16, you know it. Look with me. For God so loved the what? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life, eternal life, he, he loves us. He loves the world. He, he loves you. He loves sinners. He sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He sent him out as a missionary, an evangelist, a redeemer for us. That's God's love for us. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse number 11, the prophet Ezekiel is being told by the Lord about his role. And he said, Ezekiel, when you have a watchman on the wall and the watchman looks over the city, then he is looking for any enemies that might be approaching. And when he sees the enemy approaching, he's the sound the alarm that the enemy approaches that all might ready themselves for the enemy. But if the enemy approaches and he does not sound the alarm, then he's held accountable because he didn't sound it. 
Ezekiel, this is your role. When I speak to you, you speak what I tell you in warning to the people. And if they respond, then great. And even if they are, even if they don't repent, they've heard the word. But if you refuse to tell, then their blood is required at your hands. You're responsible. We have a responsibility to God to witness and tell because God cares. Listen to what he says. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? What he's saying is, he's saying, listen, I love my people. God takes no pleasure. It grieves the heart of God when lost people perish. Somebody should have said amen right there. How many of y'all believe that it grieves God's heart when lost people perish? You have a wrong understanding of God if you believe otherwise. He rejoices when that which is lost has been found. This is the whole thing in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, those stories that are told there about that which is lost and found. The critics of Jesus were saying he hangs out with sinners and even breaks bread with them. He, they even do invite a friend to lunch in Jesus' ministry. And they criticize him. And Jesus tells his story. He said, suppose that you have a hundred sheep, a good shepherd, and, and, and he counts and there's only 99, and one of them is lost. He leaves the 99 in good care, and he goes and he searches and looks until he finds that one that was lost. And when he finds it, he carries it and brings it back, and he says to all of his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me, because that which was lost, now been found. He's saying, in heaven, <laughs> there's rejoicing over one sinner that repents. The 99 righteous who think they know need no repentance. I'm telling you, all of heaven breaks out into a party when lost people are found, come to know Christ. Amen. God has called us to be all about it. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He tells a story about a woman who lost a coin. The coin was expensive and valuable, important to her. She sweeps out the house until she finds the one coin that was lost. It's valuable to her. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors, and she says, rejoice with me. Because that which is lost is now found. Amen. He tells a story about a son who wanted his inheritance, left home. An older brother stayed at home, but his heart was far from God. When the younger brother comes to his senses, he comes home and he 
when he comes home, he's rehearsed what he's going to say. And he comes home to his father and he says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'll be like one of your heart. Before he could even finish his speech, he's rehearsed. The father says, my son, he throws his arms around. He runs to him, throws his arms around him. He says, quick, I want you to get my robe and put on him and my ring on his hand and sandals for his feet. Let's kill the fatted calf and celebrate. And they all begin to make merry and celebrate. Why? Because that son, he said, from the father's own lips, he was once dead and now alive. He was lost and now he's found. We're going to celebrate. But the older brother could not celebrate. Why? Because he didn't understand grace and God's forgiveness. The father's pleading with this legalistic one that he loves also. And they said, we had to rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he's now alive. He was lost. He's been found. There's value in the one that was lost. We'll never celebrate about lost people being saved if we don't value them. And we'll never really tell them if we don't value them. You ever lose something that's kind of valuable to you? Is, am I the only one that misplaces stuff all the time? I hate that about me. And Christie's of no help. I know it. <laughs> I'm on thin ice. I feel it. I say, have you seen? I don't know where it's at. She said, well, it's probably where you left it last. <laughs> Deep words of wisdom. I was cleaning out my truck the other day, and I noticed underneath the seat. Have you ever done that venture? Get underneath there, clean it all out. There's gold in them hills. As I'm digging in underneath there, I'm finding all kinds of stuff. Now, some of it's not treasure. I found several bonus fries that were underneath there. I didn't really keep those. I found a few pennies, no big deal. But I found a pocket knife that I've been looking for for a long time. And somebody gave that to me 25 years ago. And it has meaning to me. <laughs> when I found it, I said, my pocket knife. I knew Christy didn't steal it. And so I, <laughs> I found it. It had value to me. And I'm rejoicing. Because that which is lost is found. Our Father made you. He created you and He loved you and you were created in His image and He loves you. And you're valuable to Him. Amen? You're valuable to Him. And this is the love of God, the love of our Father, that He loves us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1. First of all, the, the word first here means 
first of priority, first in importance, first of all then, I urge, I beg, I beseech, I pray that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, all kinds of prayer, be made for all people, for kings, presidents, governors, people in authority, and Democrats, Republicans, whatever. For all are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing to the sight of God our Savior, who, say it with me, desires all people to be saved. Verse 4, say it with me. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And this, for this I was appointed, a preacher, an apostle. I'm, not telling, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. God, love is for his children. A love for the lost is in the heart of God. And if you know God, if you're close to God, if you're walking deeply with God, if you're in alignment with Him, then you will love lost people too. But if you have no love in your heart for a world that's lost, you have moved far away from God. You may know scripture, you may be in Bible study, you may be able to parse Greek verbs. But your heart is far from God. Secondly, I want you to notice the heart of Jesus. Not only the love of God, but the heart of Christ. In chapter number 9, verse 35, he was going through all the cities and villages. And what does he do? He teaches and proclaims and heals. And notice, he sees the people. And seeing the people, as is his habit, he keeps, he's going from village to village, people to people, ministering and caring and giving of his life. And, And Matthew says, seeing the people. And this is, and so he's healing every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Notice he sees the people. The question I want to ask you is, do you see people? Do you see them in their lostness? How do you see them? How do you see people? See, notice how Jesus sees them. He saw the crowds. And he saw beyond just the multitude, he saw people. He saw who they were. In John's Gospel, chapter 4, after Jesus' encounter with the woman in Samaria at the well, his encounter with her, 
And then those villagers that come out, Samaritans, half-breeds, those who religiously were compromised, those that the, the Jews held in disregard and with disdain. But they've come to know Jesus. And lost people, even Samaritans, are being saved. And they said, Rabbi, won't you eat? Don't you need some food? He said, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And there in John's Gospel, chapter 4, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You say, four months and then the harvest. But I tell you, lift up your eyes and look, see on the field. It's ripe now. On the harvest. There are people all around us. Broken and hurting. And we've categorized them like the Samaritans. Jay beautifully preached about this last week. We categorize them. We objectify them. We discount them so we can judge them. Poor people, rich people. Walmart people. Some of you like to make fun of Walmart people. Well, I are one. I go there myself. Don't you? I bet if we took a survey, you do. You can find me at Walmart, Dollar General, Aldi's. I'm there. Ruler, I'm there. I don't usually wear my pajamas and... And neither is Christy. How easy it is to make fun of people. How's that changing their life for eternity? And there's certain people that I want to discount, make fun of. Saggy pants. No matter the race, is not pretty to me. Rich people, poor people, people of color, people with different ethnicity, people of a different language, fat people, skinny people, Democrats, socialists, Millennials, old people, Muslim people. Discount them if they've got a dot on their forehead. Discount them if they've got a scarf over their head. But our Savior saw men and women and boys and girls and families and Samaritans because they were made in the image of God and he came to redeem them. And the world will never be changed by a community of people that are filled with self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Amen. That's why we want to pray for lostness in our world, men and women and boys and girls and families in our community that don't know Christ 
because if I pray for them, then maybe God would change my heart to love them like he loved them. People can be prickly, difficult, not pleasant. So can you. We were on a trip with my mom and dad to go see our kids. It was a whirlwind trip. In a matter of a week, we drove 2,500 miles. We went to Cincinnati, saw the grandkids. Went to Virginia, saw the grandkids. Went to North Carolina, find out why they don't have any grandkids. I got a dog. We were in Virginia. We stopped at a gas station. We all needed to, well, we needed to get rid of some fluid and take on some gas. And so uh, we stopped. There was a, it was just a rundown, terrible place. Um, not kept up well and sort of a half-baked truck stop gas station deal. It was pretty messy and I went inside, and there was a, waited and waited for somebody to wait on me, and finally this woman came in. She was moving really, really slow, and she was grouchy as she could be. She, she, her whole demeanor and face, and, and, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to make her a project to love on her. My first thought was, I'm going to be mean back, but I didn't. I said, I'm going to love her. And, you know, that is the whole carnal thing I had to fight with right there for a moment because she wasn't sweet at all. There was nothing sweet about her. She, anyway... Another story. Finally, I just looked at that frown and scowl that was on her face and asked her a question about, how some, about something, and she just barked back. And, but then I saw a grimace. I said, Jordan, she had her name on there. I said, Jordan, uh, you're in pain. I said, yes, I am. I said, is it back pain? She said, yeah, my back is killing me. I got to work and the, my relief's not coming. I said, well, when's your shift? Yeah, I don't have any relief tonight. I said, back pain's terrible. I'm so sorry. I said, I've suffered with back pain. Jordan, I don't know if you're a person of faith or not, but I'd love to pray for you. She said, you would? I said, I would. Another customer came in and I said, I just want you to know when I pull off this parking lot today, I'm going to be praying for you. She said, well, thank you. And I almost saw a smile. How do you see people? Critically? It's so over easy to overlook people, amen? Mm. Not only that, he feels for them. He sees them, he feels for them. He says he felt compassion for them. The word there for compassion is, comes it's from the gut. It's from the, it's, it's from the entrails, from the bowels. That's the seat of the emotions. Emotions. We think in Greek thinking with heart as our emotion, but that the word they used was from your gut. And 
It was a deep emotional care that Jesus had deep inside of his gut for people. That was the compassion Christ had for them. He not only saw them, he, he cared deeply for them. You see, the truth of the matter is, God sees you when you hurt, and when you hurt, he hurts. For you. Amazing thought. God heard the cries of the nation of Israel. He heard them when they were slaves in Egypt. He cared for them, and he saved them. Not only what he feels, but how he works. Notice his activity in verse number 35. He was going through these silly cities and villages and teaching and, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. This was his ministry. He's calling his disciples to him in the next chapter and sending them out to do the very same kind of ministry. And then he calls out the 70 and sends them out in a similar kind of ministry to care. We notice in this passage of Scripture before, Jesus with a demon-possessed man who's mute and how Jesus sets him free from that demon that has him demonized so that he can hear and speak again. About the two blind men that prayed, Jesus, have mercy on us. And how Jesus heals them. And they can see. Or about the ruler whose daughter is sick and he died. And, and he comes to him saying, if you'll come and lay your hand on my daughter, then I know that she can live again. And he comes to the house. He says, Talitha Kumachu rises from the dead and she's healed. He's caring and loving and acting. Sandwiched in there is a story about a woman who's, for 12 years suffered and thinking that nobody knew the pain that she experienced, ostracized from the community, debilitating disease. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. He touch, she touches it and he turns and he looks at her. He, woman, your faith has made you well. And again and again he goes to Levi, a tax gatherer. And he calls him to himself, and Levi has a party and brings all of his sinner friends. And Jesus fellowships with them, loves them, preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. This is the activity of our Savior. That he calls us and commissions us to go and do the same. Notice Jesus' evaluation of the condition of the people. It says, he had compassion on them, verse 36, because they are distressed and dispirited, the New American Standard says. Harassed and helpless, the ESV says. They're harassed and helpless and hopeless. The word harassed means they're worried and distressed and, 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 and consumed with worry. They're left alone, they're wounded and being beaten up by thorns and animals exposed to the elements and others because they have no shepherd. 
They're helpless. The word helpless actually means cast down, thrown down. They're on their back. They can't get up. They've fallen and they're vulnerable victims. They can't get up. They can't save themselves. That's really our condition too, isn't it? And they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're shepherdless. No one to care for them. No one to guide them. No one to love them. Ezekiel's stinging indictment in Ezekiel chapter 34 is against the shepherds who fatten themselves and feed on the flock but don't care for the flock. And he said, this is what I'll do. I myself will come and shepherd my people. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's why Peter said to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. The truth of the matter is the condition of lost people are helpless and hopeless. There is no hope. We're described by Scripture, by Paul and others, as blind. That means the God of this world has blinded us, that we're deceived. We think we know the truth, but we don't. That's the world that we live in. People are blind. They're blind by Satan, blind by self-deception, blind by their own sin. That's the truth. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot raise themselves to life. It's only a God thing that does that. They're estranged. They're far off. And only Christ can bring them near. They're at enmity with God. At war with Him. But only Jesus can bring peace. Between us and God. And so only God can do that. Only God can make us alive. Amen. That's why we need him. Charles Spurgeon was talking about his own salvation. And that he had grown up in a Christian home. He'd heard preaching. But when he came to hear the gospel and know it. It was as if he had never heard it before. And wondered why. He had never heard the gospel preached, but he later said, when for the first time I received the gospel and my soul was saved, I thought I'd never really heard it before. And I began to think that the preachers to whom I had listened had not truly preached it. But on looking back, I'm inclined to believe that I had heard the gospel fully preached many times hundreds of times before. But this was the difference. I then heard it as though I did not hear it. And when I did hear it, the message may not have been any clearer in itself than it had been in former times, but the power of the Holy Spirit was present to open my ears and guide the message to my heart. Then I thought, I had never heard the truth preached before, but now I'm persuaded that the light shone often on my eyes, but I was blind. Therefore, I thought that the light had never come there, but the light was shining all the while, but there was no power to receive it. The eyeball of the soul was not sensitive to divine beings. You can't bring yourself. He draws you to himself. 
we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. The hopelessness without Christ. He said the harvest is plentiful. He switches analogy now from a flock to, to the harvest field. And he said the harvest is plentiful. It's full and abundant and ripe and ready. But it's unharvested. Workers are few. He's calling us, enjoining us to get involved in the harvest field where God is at work. Jesus said, my father is working and I am working even unto today. We're called to join him in this work. Amen. But we live in this consumer society. And we're so soft and we're so about ourselves. And we hear people say, well, I just want to be fed. I want to go somewhere where I'm fed. Well, I just want to be welcomed. I just want to be assimilated. I just want to be cared for. I just want to be encouraged. I just want to be served. I think we need to repent and say, I want to feed others. I want to welcome others. I want to help assimilate others. I want to care for others. I want to encourage others. I want to build up others. I want to serve others. Because when I serve, and when I care, and when I encourage, and when I love, and when I minister to others, then I find the joy of the Lord in my own life. That's where revival happens. But the workers are few. There's nothing sadder and more hopeless than to be in the harvest field and not be harvested. In Jeremiah chapter number 8, Jeremiah said, the harvest has come. The summer's ended. We're not saved. It's a lonely place to be. Let's go and be involved in the harvest that God's called us to. Amen. There's this call to prayer. He's the Lord of the harvest. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, yet he himself bore the sins of many, and he interceded for transgressors. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, hence also is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always always lives to make intercession for them. This is amazing thought. Your Savior and my Savior prayed for you. He's prayed for you from eternity past. He prays and is praying now and continues to pray for eternity, for your life, for your salvation, for your security in Christ. Now, God has to draw. God has to awaken. God has to regenerate. God has to open eyes, and he must do the saving. Amen? Amen. Pray for workers that God would cast out, send out workers into his harvest. Why? So that men will love like God, see like Jesus, feel like our Savior, and act in redemptive love in this broken world. Prayer changes me. 
aligns me, moves me. When I'm talking to, peop- to God about people, it becomes so much easier to talk to people about God. God do that in us. Amen? Amen. What do I pray for? We're going to close on this. And I'm just going to ask you to jot these down if you'd like to. And you could take the acrostic heart, H-E-A-R-T. And these are things to pray for people that don't know Christ. Number one, that they'll have receptive hearts, H. A receptive heart, a heart that's receptive. Number two, spiritual eyes will be open. Pray their eyes will be open. Number three, that their attitude by sin, of sin, about sin will be from God's perspective. They'll see sin as sin against holy God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He convinces us about sin, righteousness, judgment. Number four, <clears throat> that they would be released from their captivity to believe. In Jesus. And number five, that their life would be transformed by the Spirit of God. Amen? Receptive hearts, spiritual eyes opened, God's attitude about sin, released to believe, and a transformed life, heart. Let's pray for the lost. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for the word. It's powerful and true. Thank you for this great passage of scripture. Father, I pray that we'll be instructed in it. And Father, I pray that we'll bring our life into obedience. That Lord, we'll see the world in its brokenness. That we'll care. And that we will pray and that we will harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.